Yes, Lord, thank you, thank you for all that you do. We praise your name, praise you. That the great works of the past that you have done, the great things we look back to is the centrality of humanity that we are discussing in the coming weeks, Lord. We know you're still doing great things, that they did not end in that day, that they were not limited to that day. You had done them long before, and you continue to do them long after and will for eternity for those who love you and are your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, open up to John 18. Last week we went through verse 11, so this week... We'll start in verse 12, and we're going all the way to verse 27. Last week, you remember, we talked about Judas coming to betray Jesus. We talked about the arrest of Jesus. We talked about the fact that in John, he doesn't mention uh, Judas's kiss to Jesus because he wants to portray and remind us that Jesus is in control of this entire process. No one takes Jesus' life from him, like he says in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, of my own will. And so he actually starts that process, doesn't he? He says, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? And of course, at the divine name, everyone draws back. But they do arrest him, don't they? And so here we are in verse 12 of John 18. And we see tonight, as this passage we're going to go through, two interrogations. And they're going on simultaneously. They're happening at the same time. And that's the interrogations of Peter and Jesus. John has set up this account to remind you that both Jesus and Peter are being questioned but how different their response. How different their response to the questions. We'll see how Peter is set up as a foil for Jesus. Jesus who does what is right. Peter is a coward in this instance, isn't he? And it sets us up for the glory of John 21, which we'll talk about when we get there. But this moment is Peter's low moment, isn't it? This is, uh, it's his reckoning of all the times that he has been short-sighted and misguided about what Jesus was here to do. Peter has consistently, throughout this gospel, rebuked Jesus for saying that he was a Messiah who was going to die. And now we see that Jesus, who was always said this was the plan, Peter cannot bear the plan. He, can, he is not willing, he cannot yet be willing to die for Jesus. And so he protects his, his own life. He, he attempts to... Um, protect himself. It's self-preservation, isn't it? What Peter does here. Let's read. In verse 12 of John 18. So the Roman cohort, which we talked about last week, and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him 
and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So I have to give you some background here, because one of the confusing <clears throat> things about this passage is the way it uses high priest. <clears throat> Annas, as you will know, is not high priest at this time. Caiaphas is, that's what he says. Caiaphas was high priest that year. And yet, throughout the passage, it uses the word high priest to refer to Annas. Why is that? Well, what you need to understand is high priest in this day had become almost like a political office. The Romans would choose who they wanted to be high priest, and they would keep them as long as they did their bidding. And when they felt they were no longer useful or expedient, they would exchange them for someone else. Okay? So, that's the Roman way of thinking about things. But what does the Jewish people think? What, what do they think? Well, in Leviticus, the high priesthood is a, an office for life. Right? It's a, it's a lifetime office. Until you die, you are considered high priest. Annas was high priest. Up till about 6 CE, or, or you know, AD, if you want to call it that. Um, so until then, he was, he was the high priest. And Rome deposed him and put Caiaphas, his son-in-law, as high priest in his stead. So Caiaphas has been high priest for quite a while now. He's been a high priest for quite a while. But what is interesting and worth noting is that this passage continues to refer to Annas as high priest. One, probably because the Jews thought it was a lifetime office. So he's still, in their eyes, Annas may have still been considered a high priest. And what's interesting is after Caiaphas, after the time of Jesus, uh, if you want to know about the kind of clout that Annas had, uh, five more of his sons became high priest after Caiaphas. So there is a huge amount of influence and power that this man has. This is not just some random person they're bringing him to. This is the father-in-law of the current high priest, and he used to be the high priest himself. And five of his sons go on to be high priest after him. Mm. So he's a very influential person. So John is the only person that records this interaction with Annas, that he was taken to Annas first. And, and this is not like a... Uh, it's not like a true trial, right? This is just an informal questioning. He's just been arrested, and this is kind of an informal questioning. And by the end of our passage, it says they send Jesus to Caiaphas afterwards. And then, of course, next week, we'll read about how Caiaphas takes him and brings him over to Pilate, which is really the true Roman trial he received with, before Pilate. <clears throat> but here, this is just preliminary. Jesus has been arrested, and they want to know about who he is. So they take him to Annas, this man with great clout, who maybe in their eyes was still even considered to be the high priest. So Simon Peter. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, which is basically a courtyard of Annas' home. Right? Think of it like a kind of like a yard almost, right? It's a courtyard in front of his home, and they bring him in, Jesus, to bring him to Annas. And so there's a doorkeeper, it says, right? 
who was known to the high priest, and this other disciple spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Brought Peter in. What's interesting is this other disciple is never named. Now, there's two main theories about who it is. One theory is to tie it to the beloved disciple, who's also not named, right, until the end. He says, I am the beloved disciple. He's talking about the author, which most people would say is the apostle John. So one, one possible interpretation is that this is John. This other disciple is John. And John knows the high priest and knows the high priest's family. And he is able to speak to the doorkeeper and get in because he knows them. And also even bring Peter in. So that's one possibility. And, and there's a lot to commend it because John and Peter are often tied together, aren't they? These two disciples are shown to be together a lot throughout the New Testament. So that's one option. The other is it's just an unnamed disciple. It doesn't say it's the beloved disciple, it just says another disciple. So it could be that there was just a, a well-known, maybe Jewish aristocrat, you know, that someone who had a little more clout in Jerusalem, who knew the family but had become a disciple of Jesus. And he allowed Peter to come in because he knew Peter was close with Jesus. Uh, whatever position you take on that, it really doesn't impact the story, but it's interesting to know. But whatever the case, this disciple and Peter enter the courtyard. And it's interesting because the slave girl who kept, who kept the door, they, she says to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples? Which may, may lead us to think maybe it's John. Maybe they know that whoever this person is knows that this man is a disciple of Jesus. And so they say to Peter, are you also one of, this one of this man's disciples? That also is an interesting word there. So the slave girl says, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter responds, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Again, highly irregular. It's nighttime, isn't it? That's why they have a fire going. So whatever is going on is happening under cover of night. They bring Jesus to Annas in darkness and question him without calling the Sanhedrin together, without calling the council together. This is highly irregular. It's not according to the judicial proceedings they should be following. But like I said, this is informal. He's just doing kind of preliminary questioning, but it's also very, very odd, and it's certainly not following Jewish law. So Peter's there, standing and warming himself by the fire, along with the officers who had arrested Jesus. And John stops with Peter. He's, he's denied once already. Immediately, it's the first thing that happens when he walks in. The doorkeeper asks, are you one of his disciples too? And Peter says, no, I'm not. John cuts the narrative there on Peter and goes back to Jesus. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Two things that Jesus is questioned about. He's questioned about his disciples and his teaching. Notice what Jesus responds to. 
Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. What question does Jesus not answer? Jesus is not telling them about his disciples, one of whom is in the very courtyard next to him. Jesus easily could have said, oh yeah, you want to know about my disciples? They're right there. There's one right there. What is Jesus doing? Same thing he's been doing the whole time. He's protecting his disciples. Jesus does not answer the questions about his disciples or how many have followed him or who is following him. Because Jesus is protecting them. He's protecting their lives so that they too don't have to die. It's a stark contrast between Peter, who denies his master, and Jesus, who protects his disciple. What's Jesus saying? Other than protecting his disciples, what's he saying about his teaching? His point is this. There's nothing subversive about what I've been doing. There is nothing hidden about what I've been doing. Everything I've said, I spoke openly. Now, what's Jesus not saying? Is Jesus saying he never talked to his disciples in private? Is he saying he never you know, gave them lessons? Uh, no, that's not his point. His point is not to say he's never taught people in an intimate setting. His point is to say there's no hidden teaching. There's not like, you know, the public gets this version of my teaching, and then my disciples get the secret deep things. There's none of that. Jesus says, everything I have said, I have said openly. I taught in the synagogues. I taught in the temple. People have heard me. There's nothing insidious about what I'm doing. I am preaching the message that God has given me to preach. And you have heard it. And, and his point is to say, why take my word for it? Call witnesses. Right? There is this trial element, isn't there? Call witnesses. Have them testify before you. They will tell you what I've said. Don't take my word for it. You can call the people who heard me teach, and they will tell you what I have taught in the temple, what I have taught in the synagogues. Of course, corrupt power doesn't like to be questioned, does it? When Jesus had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus. It means slapped him in the face. One of the officers standing nearby slapped Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus says, I haven't done anything wrong. How, why are you hitting me? Why are you reacting to what I'm saying? Tell me what I've done wrong if you're going to, to punish me. Remember earlier in the Gospel of John, I think it's John 8. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's John 8, where Jesus had said, Who here can testify of any sin that I've done? No one can do it. No one can do it. 
Jesus has already proven to the public that he is trustworthy, that he is not a, a man who does wrong. No one is able to, to point out anything he's done wrong. And here again, Jesus says, if I've done something wrong, tell me what it is. They have nothing. They have nothing to pin on him. So what does Annas do? Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, John cuts us back to Peter. Jesus has had his questioning. Let me go back to Peter here. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. It's reminding us where Peter was, right? These things are supposed to be happening simultaneously. At the same time that Peter is standing there warming himself by the fire, Jesus is being questioned. I don't know if Peter's within earshot or not. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the courtyard would have looked like or how big it would be. But they're close. It's, it's probably not huge. It's an intimate setting. You can fit people in there, clearly. There's officers and the doorkeeper and all these people. But, but they're not distance. They're not you know yards and yards and yards away from each other. It's possible Peter could be hearing what's going on. In fact, most likely that's why Peter went in, right? To see what was happening with Jesus. So my guess is he would have been close. And so it cuts back to Peter who's still warming himself by the, by the fire, maybe even hearing what Jesus just did for him, hearing that Jesus didn't answer the question about the disciples. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Second time. Same question. Same question as the doorkeeper. He denied it and said, I am not. That John is the only person who said this, by the way. This is interesting. Then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Now remember Peter, how brave he was when he had the sword, how ready he was to kill for Jesus. And now he has nothing to protect himself. Nothing but his own word. And this relative just happens to be there. This relative of the, of the high priest's slave who clearly went with the party to arrest Jesus. He was there. He had seen it all. And seeing it all, still, still this man was there recognizing Peter seeing him in the garden, and, and Peter has a choice, doesn't he? Am I going to own up to this? Because it almost certainly will cost him his life if he does. Right? He's, he's assaulted the high priest's slave, cut off his ear. He stopped the Jewish officers from, you know, obviously they, they completed their goal, but he was obstructing what they were trying to accomplish. Peter has a choice. So the relative sees him and says, Did I not see you in the garden? Peter then denied it again. And immediately, a rooster crowed. John's interesting because this is the portrait they give us of Peter. That's it. That's what we get. 
You know, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, they mention the bitterness and the tears and, and Peter, you know, leaving in, in bitterness and tears. They give more kind of the personal peace of what happens with Peter. But here in John, this is, this is it. He denies three times and immediately, right, the rooster crows. Immediately. And the point in this passage is not actually about Peter, is it? That's one of the reasons John doesn't feel the need to mention those things. Because actually, like the synoptics really want to give you that personal aspect of what happened with Peter. But here in John, what's the point? The point is Jesus was right. Again, John is focused on Jesus. And I would say all the Gospels are, obviously. But John uniquely wants to talk about the divinity of Christ in a unique way. And so his point is not to say, man, Peter made a bad choice per se, though he did. His point is to say Jesus knew. Jesus was right. Remember when Jesus predicted? He was correct. Peter did do it. And it was immediately after he did it the third time that the rooster crowed. But this is a portrait. This is a portrait of Peter and Jesus because they're in similar situations. They're being questioned and the questions are going to cost them their life. These interrogations, the answers they give will either spare their life or cost them their life. Jesus stands out as the hero, doesn't he? Willing to protect his disciples Willing to respond honestly to the questions that come to him. Peter, on the other end, denies that he even knew Jesus. Not just that he was a disciple, not just that he was close, that he even knew him. He's not one of his disciples, is what Peter says. And we have to ask ourselves, too, what we would do in that situation. And I think unequivocally the answer is we would have denied, too. Because what does Peter not have? He does not have the Spirit of God. I don't know if Peter could have answered with the courage and peace that comes with having the Spirit. Because he had not received the Spirit of God yet. What's interesting about the passage is that Peter can't have the courage to die for Jesus until Jesus dies for Peter. And we know by the end of this book, and we know tradition, the book doesn't record it, but we know at the end of this book Jesus alludes to the fact that Peter will die for him, doesn't he? He says, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you, they will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And it says, it was alluding to the kind of death he would die. And tradition tells us <clears throat> that Peter, like Jesus, these men both in interrogations right now, that Peter, when he dies, is also crucified. 
And when they go to crucify Peter, a willing, now a willing testifier of who Jesus is, not a denier, filled with the Spirit and ready to die for Jesus. And when they go to crucify him, what does Peter say? He says, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Turn me upside down. And he's crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die like Jesus. That's what Peter thought. Peter the coward. Peter the denier. Ends up being Peter the testimony, the testifier, the witness of who Jesus is. But we have to get through John 21 before that can happen. Jesus has to restore him. Jesus has to restore him first. And we will talk about that story when we get to John 21. But I can't help but mention it now as we look at Peter's greatest failure. I think about if John 21 didn't exist. If we didn't have that in the record. If it was just John 18, Peter denied three times in light of Jesus being willing to die for him. And we just had John 18 we thought, okay, Peter denied him three times. Wouldn't he look just like Judas? I, I think he would. I think you look at Peter's story and you end it here. He looks just like Judas. Judas betrays him with a kiss, gets him arrested. Peter has a story where he denies his Lord three, time, three times and lets his Lord go to his death. Praise God for John 21 because we know that there is redemption. We know that there is redemption for Peter. And I've got to be honest, if we didn't see that, I think we'd all feel pretty hopeless. Because I think we all have had moments where we've acted and done that in our lives. That we've denied them. Maybe not explicitly. Maybe not literally. But I think we've all had moments where we felt ashamed to be called by the name of Christ. We, we didn't want to let anyone know we were a Christian. We were worried that someone might, you know, mistreat us or belittle us or like, oh, you believe in that old fairy tale or, or whatever could happen because of that. I think we've all, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had a moment like that. You've had moments where you've doubted. You've had moments where you were not faithful to the level the Lord has called you to. Can you imagine if we were left with just John 18? And that's where we were sitting. Man, we're just like Peter. We're just like Judas. Praise God for John 21. Because it shows there's hope. There's hope for all of us. That we are not Judas. That we can act and think and operate like Peter. And there's still a redemption to be had. And, and Jesus, I love that story. And again, I, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but I love that story so much because Jesus takes Peter exactly to his pain. Exactly to his pain. What does Jesus do in John 21? He asks him three times, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's, a, it's an exact parallel of this situation. He denies Jesus three times, and Jesus takes him right to his pain point and asks him, do you really love me, Peter? Do you really love me? And Peter answers, yes, of course, each time. And I love the comment when he asks him the third time. It says, Jesus asked him again a third time, Simon, son of John, do you really love me? It says Peter was hurt because he asked him the third time. It just leaves that comment there. It just leaves that comment there. It doesn't say anything more about it. Peter was hurt because he was asked the third time. Because Peter knew. Peter knew what Jesus was doing. Jesus was taking him right back to that hole at the center of his heart when he denied Jesus three times. And Peter felt the pain of that moment brought up. But I'll tell you this, if Jesus had not done that, Peter never would have found healing. If Jesus had not taken him to that place, the place of the, th the three denials, Peter never would have let go of it. Peter would have felt his guilt for the rest of his life. I have no doubt that Peter would have maintained his own anguish and his own guilt and never would have been able to let it go. Jesus did exactly what Peter needed to deal with the pain of his own heart. Because he asked him three times. And I guess my, my reminder to you is to not be afraid of the pain. Because in my own life, I can testify that in the same way, Jesus has taken me back to my pain points to find healing. There's a lot of different healing you can have in your life. A lot of different things to be healed. But some things are so deep and so great that the Lord cannot heal them until he takes you back to those things. In mine, it was ministry. The pain of leaving ministry and if I had never come back to ministry that pain would have never left my heart the Lord led me back I didn't want to go back to it the Lord himself led me back to it trust the pain it's in the pain it's in the hurt that God does redemption don't be afraid to walk towards hard things don't be afraid to walk towards suffering because it is in those moments, like I prayed at the beginning, like Job. It's in those places, in those moments, in which we see God, in which we meet Him. I would argue most clearly, if Jesus is not evident enough, we serve a suffering God, a God that bore sin, a God that was willing to suffer and die in our stead. Jesus did that. And not just Jesus, but the Lord did that. The Father did that. He gave his only son. How much pain must that have inflicted on the heart of God to give his only son, to watch his son be crucified? The Lord is leading us towards great things. So don't be afraid to walk into them, those hard places, with him.
not just in your own life, but in the lives of others too. Sometimes we can be gun shy to enter other people's pain. And that's wrong too, because that's the place where we seek grace. Those are the moments and the places in which we see God's grace poured out. So, let me pray for you tonight. Let me bless you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray each person in here would not be afraid of the painful spots in their hearts. They would not be afraid of the spots where suffering resides, where difficulty dwells, where there are scars and pain and, and suffering and grief. I pray that they would walk towards that. I pray they would walk towards the things that you have for them in those areas, God. Would we not be full of fear as we approach those areas, but we would be full of courage recognizing that you stand over even those darkest areas of our heart, even the areas that are in the most painful, that feel like we could never revisit. You are Lord of those areas. You are still God in the darkness, in the pain, in the suffering. And so I pray we would all, in your timing, learn to come to those areas, deal with them, suffer through them, Speak about them with those who love us. Confess to them so that we might be healed by your power and by your grace. And I pray that even for those areas we may not remember, would you bring them to mind so that we can be healed and whole because that's what you want for us. You desire for us heal, healing and wholeness, Lord. We know you desire that for us. And we trust your timing. We trust your ability to do that. So each one of us, may we approach those areas like Peter had to. But Lord, we don't want to do it alone. We, we can't do it alone. Just like with Peter, Lord, would you walk us back to those spots. Lead us back to them so that we might find healing and wholeness in you, Jesus. We pray this by your name. Bless these people. Bless these people. I'm so grateful for them. Would this community grow stronger as we deal with our own pain, our own suffering, as we think about what Jesus did, what he was willing to do, be condemned as an innocent man, and as we think about our own likeness reflected in Peter, and how often we can fail, how often we fall short, how often we can be ashamed of the great name by which we are called, which is your name, Jesus. Help us to not have any shame. Help us to love that name so much that we too, like Peter, would one day that we'd be willing to die for it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.